Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NELA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the Board of Directors of NELA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. Welcome back to Employee to Lawyer. I am Max Barrick. And I'm Amit Bindra. And today we're speaking with Rachel Ablin. Rachel is the founder of Ablin Law PC. Rachel's firm specializes in conducting workplace investigations related to complaints of harassment, discrimination, or other violations of company policies or the law. Prior to starting her own firm, Rachel has had a varied career. She worked for more than 19 years as an employment counselor for Walgreens. And before Walgreens, she also worked for the EEOC, our friends, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. You can tell it's a Friday. I am so mentally off my game. Rachel, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for coming on. Although I think it's a Saturday, so. It is a Saturday. Yeah, you need coffee. <laughs> I, I do. I, I had a choice between a walk with the dog and the baby and my wife or, or coffee, and I chose the former. We'll see, if we'll, we'll see if I chose poorly or not. So Rachel, you've got a unique background, and we want to talk about investigations because many of our listeners, and obviously our bar is all on the plaintiff side, and for those of us who do Title VII type work like harassment or discrimination, obviously the adequacy and just existence of workplace investigations really play heavily into it. So can you talk to us a little bit about what brings you on, how do you end up somewhere doing an investigation? And then what does that investigation look like? So I typically get hired by companies when there is a more, either a more complex case, or it involves high, high level people like a CEO, CFO, GC, if it's in with within like the compliance department or human resources department, you know, things that internally it might be difficult for someone to handle because they either report to the person or the, the group that investigates claims would be investigating itself. So I typically get hired by companies in those kinds of cases. I also get hired when there just isn't anyone to do an investigation. It's either a small company or there's no human resources or nobody really equipped to do it. And I handle, you know, I get involved in those kinds of cases too. So I have a basic question. What, what type of claims then are you investigating? Why would a company bring you in? What has to essentially happen? So most of the time I am investigating complaints of harassment and discrimination by an employee. It can also vary though. Sometimes there are policy violation claims. Sometimes it's really almost like an HR audit, I call it. Like there's just dysfunction within a group and they want to get their arms around what it is and what's causing it and why. And so I'll be brought in for that kind of a thing too. So it does vary, but it's generally employment related for the most part, some kind of policy or, or statute violation. So most of the time you're being brought in from a, from a legal standpoint to make sure there's compliance to minimize liability. But it sounds like sometimes you might be brought in from a morale standpoint, like there's something going on on a team, they're not functioning correctly or product productively, and then they bring you in for that. Yes, that's correct. Right. And a lot of times, even when I am brought in for a legal violation and that, you know, I can uncover a lot of dysfunction and, and usually an HR department, you know, they, they're interested in that and sort of trying to figure that out and, you know, make the workplace a better place for people. So, so then, and this is probably the wrong term, who's your client in the investigation? 
So that's a great question. So I inevitably get hired by a company because it's the company's obligation to do a prompt, thorough, and unbiased investigation in response to these complaints. So there's really no other way to do it because they're the ones that have access to the employees, to the to the information, to the data, to all, and frankly, it's their job to do it. So I get hired to be an objective third party. I establish that up front that I'm not hired to, you know, come out with a determination that they want to see. I, you know, will do the investigation and find out, you know, what what is actually going on or trying to find out what is actually going on there. Does that ever, does that ever, have you ever found yourself, and we're obviously not asking you to um, get yourself into trouble, but as a general matter, do, do you find that ever puts you in an awkward spot where the person or the people that bring you in are the problem, or you find, my God, the rot here is really bad, some people at the top are really, this is going to get uncomfortable. You know, I have had um, situations, and they've all worked out, but I have had awkward situations where I've had like the, the subject, maybe the subject of the investigation is the CEO and the CEO will call me to say, there's this complaint about me and we need, <laughs> we need to investigate. So that's always a little awkward. It doesn't happen too often. In fact, I probably can only recall it maybe once, but it, you know, it can happen and it is an awkward situation. And, and, and sometimes if they have outside counsel, I try to sort of work with outside counsel and, and avoid the communication with you know, the CEO until it's time, you know, for their interview. But yeah, it can get awkward sometimes. So I'm going to, I was thinking initially when we would do this interview, we would kind of go chronologically, but I'm just having some questions as we go. So I'm going to jump around a little bit. And I, I'm sorry, hopefully this makes sense for our listeners too. But so when you do an investigation, you put together then a report and who do you send it to? And is that privileged? I guess that was three questions, which is bad, but... Objection. No, Objection, but no, go ahead. Just to make it for the record, I'm not the only one who has all these compound questions. Yes. So I I do for the most part, you know, it's up to the client. I will operate under privilege, understanding though that a lot of times my privilege gets waived. And frankly, if it gets into an argument about it, you know, judge is going to decide whether my information or report are privileged or not. So I always assume that at some point it would get disclosed, but I do leave that up to the client to decide. Sometimes I get hired to do a non-privileged investigation because they're not interested in having it privileged. You know, how I operate, I do typically, I would say 90, 95% of the time I write a report uh, because they're hiring me to show that they did a proper investigation. And so they typically want a report. So that's most of the time. I can't say every time, but most of the time there is. When you do write a report, is your recommendation actually implemented? So I don't, what I try to do is I try to stay out of recommending because I'm usually brought in by outside counsel for a lot of the time, not always, but a lot of the time. So they're usually working with outside counsel already. So I'll give a determination as to what I think happened with the facts, not a legal determination, but a factual one. And then I typically leave it to the client and their outside counsel to figure out, you know, what to do about it. And then you mentioned sometimes reports are either privileged or non-privileged. What's the thought process between choosing between those options? Usually, I mean, I, you know, I, I would 
I'm just saying on behalf of clients, I don't actually know, but I would assume most of the time they're deciding they operate like, let's just go ahead and make it privileged and we'll decide later if we need to. Sometimes there are clients where I can think of one where there was a lot of social media, a lot of, you know, a lot going on, a lot of publicity, and they made the decision that they did not want a privileged investigation, that they wanted to be more transparent about it up front. So, you know, that doesn't happen all the time, but occasionally it kind of depends on what type of client it is. You. Do you have a standard playbook you necessarily follow for investigations or do you, and maybe it's just in between the two things, but, or is it more of an open-ended, okay, I get here, I see what I'm looking at, and then I go at it, or is it, you know, in between those things? Probably in between, you know, I've been doing it for so many years and I'm sure a lot of it is just innate in me <laughs> at this point, but it's, it's somewhat in between. For the most part, I always start with the complainant in terms of interviews. I uh, always end with the subject. Now, you know, there are reasons to, to vary from that occasionally, and I do occasionally, but for the most part, I always start with the subject, uh, excuse me, start with the complainant and with the subject and talk to whomever witnesses, you know, before talking to the subject. I like to get all my information, my, my evidence, you know, my documentary evidence, my statements, everything done before talking to the subject of the complaint so that you know, I, I can tell if someone's lying to me or, you know, that just, I like to have all my ducks in a row. Um, so that said, every case is so factually different. I'm sure you both know, you know, how that goes. So, you know, who I talk to and in what order is pretty much decided after I have a chance to really get my arms around what the complaint is. What documents so do you look at? Do you like pull I'm going to use a lawyer term, but ESI or electronically stored information from servers. Do you look for emails? What are you looking at? Text messages? It could be anything and everything, depending on the type of case. You know, if it's a harassment case and there's been communications between people, by all means, I love to see what the emails are. You know, what the tech these days, everybody's on their own personal telephone with, you know, text messaging. And so it's pretty hard to get it unless someone offers it up. But to the extent that there's any kind of communications, IMs, company owns, you know, documentation of that stuff, that I'd love to try to get that. I'll, you know, depending on the case, if it's a failure to promote case, I'll look at history of promotions, you know, performance reviews, resumes, applicant data, that kind of thing. Prior complaints, if there's any, you know, documentation of any prior complaints. I'm sure there's more I'm not thinking of right now, but... Um, that's sort of off the top of my head. That's okay. We'll just, we'll, we'll deduct from your score for incomplete. No, that's really helpful. So, you know, one thing I, one of the situations I, I feel like I see a lot in our, harass, in our harassment work is the sort of common, well, it's he said, she said, like, let's say it's a, I don't know that harassment should ever be standard, but let's just say it's what what we think of as sexual harassment, inappropriate comments. Maybe it's escalated a little beyond that. You know, somebody goes to management and says, whether to HR or a supervisor, what have you, and says, hey, this is happening. Respondent or whomever obviously denies. You know, you come in, you don't have witnesses. A lot of the time, I feel like I see the company kind of throws their hands up and says, I don't know what to tell you. He denies it you said it happened, it's inconclusive, or we don't think it happened. Like, how do you, as an investigator, how do you reconcile that situation? And 
maybe when you're writing a report, what do you, what do you do with that? Are you making credibility determinations? That's a great question. And it is something I see from my internal, you know, friends it happens a lot. So I, I agree. I do see that a lot. So the way I handle it is, and the way I always recommend internal investigators handle it is that, you know, you, you look at what is your, what is your standard of, of proof? What are you using as a standard of proof? For me, I use more likely than not or preponderance of the evidence. So it's 50% in a feather, you know, or 51% likely or not likely uh, that something did or didn't happen. And so if it's truly a he said, she said, you really can't avoid making a credibility determination. And the factors I use in making those determinations are all the EEOC. I can't remember them all right now, but the EEOC factors, you know, they spell them out, and, you know, corroboration. And so you look at all of those I usually analyze it in terms of all of those factors and I, you just have to make a credibility determination. And if there's anything at all that pushes it over into that 51%, then the complainant's claims are substantiated. If, if there's nothing that pushes it over into that 51% category, then they're not substantiated. And so I think that's hard for internal folks to sort of wrap their heads around a little bit because, you know, it, it's a scary position to be in, I think. That's okay. I'm just glad it's not my dog. So for our listeners, Rachel's got a couple of dogs and one is, don't, don't be sorry. Amit and I enjoy the, the human moments in the show. I can't speak to what our listeners do or do not enjoy to the extent they do exist. I'm just glad I'm not the only one who's had a dog who's yeah. I assumed it was Max's dog, actually. <laughs> we can talk about that. So where, where, where do you actually conduct the interviews? Are they like in person, over phone, Zoom? So they were in person for a very, very long time. Occasionally it would be over the phone if for whatever reason, logistically, it didn't work out in person. And then COVID happened. And then, I, you know, we were all, I think, just, I know myself and, and colleagues who are in this field with me, were really reluctant, you know, to use Zoom and to use virtual. And now I have to say, I am so used to it that it, it feels almost no different. And I think any, I think you really truly can get used to anything. And I think that was just the issue that, that we didn't use it and we weren't used to it and didn't like it. And, and now without, you know, because we didn't really have a choice, I, I have to say it's pretty convenient. The cases move much faster, you know, scheduling and you're not working out travel and all that. It's, it's, it's been pretty helpful. So have you found people are more open when it's remote? Or more likely to I, talk to you? That was my, I had a question about that too. I wanted to know about like, if you think it affects credibility or how people yeah. approach their, their, in, their interviews. Huh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't really, I can't really say. I do think to the extent that people aren't at the workplace, that that naturally makes it, you know, you're not waiting for your supervisor to walk by or, you know, I think that does make it naturally sort of a more comfortable environment, but I can't, I don't know if it makes people, I, 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 I'll have to think about that. I, I, always, I, I always felt people on the phone were more open to me than in person. And I feel Zoom is an extension of that because you just feel more comfortable, but maybe that's just my side. I know Max was going to chime in too. 
Oh, I was giggling. I had a silly question. I was just going to ask if any, if you had to investigate any Jeffrey Jeffrey Tubin like situations, given that. <laughs> see now my now my dog is contributing. So there we go. Uh, Burley is making his presence known, and he is like the size of a horse. So he's got a loud bark. Maybe I should mute. I was going to say, have you had to investigate any Jeffrey Tubin like situations, or had that sort of thing come up? The no pants, or if you will. No, I. I if, if, the funny thing is, I actually had to like think about it for a second. <laughs> Which, if that gives you any indication of the kind of stuff I deal with, I had to actually think about that if I did. But no, I did not. Not yet, anyway. How, has I guess that's a good springboard to this question. Has COVID changed the type of complaints you're dealing with? Like, are there more complaints now based on messages on Slack or that type of stuff versus before? There was a stretch during the you know the last year during all of the black lives matter and there was a lot of effort i think i feel like there were sort of well-intentioned but poorly handled kind of dei efforts within companies where i think companies just didn't know what to do and were trying to do the right thing but it just didn't DEI. Get like like diversity inclusion type sorry. meetings <laughs> and sorry i apologize um oh, I, i'm sorry i should have known <laughs> that's my in-house background i think so so there was a lot of conversations about race and and you know the, all of that and while it was well-intentioned i think people just weren't equipped for him you know how to handle those or facilitate those conversations and so i think that sort of erupted a little bit and I saw during that period you know a number of cases where it was just like ooh, you know I, it just people were upset and yeah it just yeah I saw a lot of that during you know COVID and then you know the rest of the cases I would say it just sort of kept you know even though everybody was working remote somehow there were still you know similar cases that you know people it wasn't even like that it was happened via zoom like the report bad zoom communications it was still the same types of things like i'm not getting promoted you know i'm not being taken seriously and you know whether it happened via zoom or happened in person it didn't seem to really matter so so you you mentioned the black lives matter movement and that kind of brought up the covid bit i want to throw one more large social movement into it just for fun to really complicate it so the me too movement as well so i think I guess what I'm saying is over the last few years, we've had quite a few different large social movements or or societal incidents happen that really have altered people's perceptions or at least put them on notice of new issues. Do you think, has any of these three things, for lack of a better word, changed the nature of the stuff you see, changed what people are willing to complain about or people coming forward about or how companies how companies assess risk or a need for an investigation and change? Like, are there things where 10 years ago you think, yeah, they're not even going to bother calling me or they don't really care about this. Whereas now with any one of these three large concepts in place, they're like, okay, we got to, we got to take this seriously. We really got to look into this now. I think the problems and the, you know, the issues have always been the same and they have been the same since I started as an investigator 25 years ago. And now I think 
with these movements, the, the nice part of them is that I think people are more sensitive to take it more seriously, you know, realize that in addition to sort of legal liability, there could be potential for, you know, employee morale issues and in addition to public relations issues. So I think there is a heightened awareness about it that, that didn't maybe happen, before, you know, didn't really exist as well before and a heightened concern and a heightened interest in addressing it properly, which I think is all great. So it, it's a little, you know, so that's sort of my outside perspective. Now, of course, I've been in this area of the law for so long that, you know, I've always taken it seriously, you know, I, so it's hard for me to know, you know, how other in-house people are, you know, handling it. But the impression I get for sure is that, and, and frankly, I started my practice six months before Me Too. So I don't have, from an external investigator perspective, I don't have much of a comparison. So, but I do just sort of anecdotally from being an investigator way back when, and then, you know, that, that there definitely is a heightened concern about these cases that do not exist before. And I credit people, you know, finally coming forward. I think in my generation, you know, growing up in work, you know, people didn't talk so much and or complain so much. And they, they still don't. But I think there is definitely more of a, you know, pushed for, you know, I'm not going to accept this kind of behavior in the workforce. And I think that's holding companies a little more accountable for doing something about it, which I think is great. A lot of the complaints you're investigating are going to be obviously very sensitive matters. And I think probably to the person complaining and the person who's the subject of it, it's probably a very difficult situation. How do you build trust then with everyone involved throughout the process? Hey, this is Ahmed and Max. Thanks for listening to Employee to Lawyer. I hope you're all enjoying the show and the content and all of our guest stories. And we'd love your help in spreading news about Neil Illinois and the show. Please encourage your friends and family to subscribe and share. And if you happen to listen to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a nice review. But only if it's going to be a five-star rating. Yeah, otherwise we're all set. That's probably more of an art than a science, right? I think my willingness to just find, you know, just to learn really my curiosity and, you know, an interest in people and what they've been through helps, you know, I think even it's been tough with COVID and, and doing virtual interviews to establish rapport. I do think going back to our previous, you know, conversation about in-person versus the nice thing about in-person, I think it's, there's more of an immediate rapport that you can build, whereas via Zoom, it takes a little bit more effort to, to establish a relationship and, you know, a, a trust level. But that said, I think that, you know, I just try to be open and listen and, you know, not too pretty friendly and, and just understand that people are nervous and are upset. And, you know, that, that's the best I can come up with. I, I don't know. It, it's, it's a little bit of an innate ability to just establish rapport with people, I think. And probably some of it's not even stuff you can really articulate, right? Like it's just nonverbal signals kind of sending people, right? Like giving off an energy that you're here to hear what they have to say and you're trying to be as neutral as possible about it, right? Right, right, right. And I think generally people appreciate that 
when a company does go to the you know expense of bringing me in to do this that they appreciate that but you know for the most part not always but usually so what about let's let's shift gears ever so slightly away from the kind of run of run of the mill from the title 7 type harassment discrimination policy type violations what about criminal activity or gen, more general compliance where there are potential not not civil in the sense that we've been talking about like oh somebody might sue you but hey the federal government or state government or this agency might investigate you and levy civil fines or somebody might go to jail for this but does that are you brought in for those scenarios? And if so, how does that change your approach? I, that's, yes and no. So I have been brought in for like travel and expense violation, that kind of thing. That doesn't typically end up in, in unless there's a huge embezzlement. I don't do that, you know, a huge embezzlement, kind of white collar kind of investigations typically. Where I see it the most is in sexual harassment claims where somebody's alleging that something happened that could really be a sexual assault. And a lot of times, you know, police might may or may not be involved, depending on what the parties decide to do. But I have had cases where, you know, the company has called the police to report it or an employee is the police to report it. And, and I try to do the best I can. I understand that my standard of proof is very different than a criminal. So I'm not trying to make any kind of criminal determinations. I'm just trying to, you know, from an employment perspective, you know, is it more likely than not that something happened that would result in somebody's employment being affected? So, but it can be sticking. I know when I was in-house, you know, it was always a balance between get, you know, reaching a decision from an employment perspective and sort of not stepping on the toes of the police because you certainly don't want to interfere with their investigations. You do the best you can to you know, tread lightly and cooperate and, and that kind of thing. When should or can someone have an attorney as part of the process? So if they're being interviewed either as a subject or the person making the complaint or a witness, are there circumstances where people do show up with an attorney? Sure. They do a lot. And, uh, or I guess I shouldn't say a lot. They do occasionally. What I, because I'm external and I'm an attorney, and if somebody's represented, I always uh, you know, allow the attorney to participate with the understanding that, you know, I want to hear from the witness, not from the attorney. Or I get permission from the attorney to talk to the, the represented person so that I don't run afoul of, you know, any kind of ethical rules. But internal people, if you're not an attorney and you're doing a regular internal run, of, you know, I, I, here I say run of the mill too, I guess I shouldn't say run of the mill, but doing an investigation internally and nobody else is an attorney, you know, you can continue doing your employment workplace violation investigation and, and not allow the attorney to be present. But I always do. I, and it doesn't matter to me either way because I've been doing it for so many years and I'm an attorney and it's fine. I, I've, I've really never had a problem, but, but I could see internally if you've got, you know, an HR generalist who might get intimidated by an attorney president, they don't have to require them. Do you find it, how does an attorney being part of the process impact the investigation? If at all, it, it may not even. Like a, like complainants? Yeah. Attorney? Yeah. Um, I find it doesn't really impacted either way as long as that attorney is 
um, being respectful of the process. You know, they're not overly aggressive or, or trying to, you know, manipulate the situation in any way. If they're being cooperative and providing documentation, I'm more than happy to review it and take it, you know, but the, the idea is always that I want to hear from the witness and not from the attorney. And, and most, for the most part, the attorneys are pretty respectful about that. Are there any, this is a broad question on purpose, I, just given everything we've covered, are there any major mistakes or don't let this happen, don't let this happen to you situations you see on the management side where like, man, in their approach to investigations or not investigating things you see a lot where you're like, if there's one message I could send people to do or not to do, this would be it. From a management point of view or from an internal just- yeah, just generally, in your work, things you see that you think people ought to do differently? Well, I think from an internal investigation point of view, I think you already hit on one of those things, which is that I think internal investigators are really nervous about making credibility determinations. And frankly, they're really the only ones, you know, if you're the one interviewing everybody and you're getting all the information, you're really the only one to make that credibility determination. And so I think that that's probably an area where investigations can fall apart. Because I do see a lot of times where people will just say, oh, it's 50-50, you know, kind of throw up your hands sort of a thing. And I get that inclination, but the work is in sort of really making a decision. So I do think that's difficult. There's so many ways it can go wrong and there's so many ways it can go right that I, you know, I'm trying to think of like my top, top picks. I would say from investigating internally, I do another thing I find when I'm reviewing cases, you know, occasionally a client will have me review a previous case that was handled internal. Just some basic things like you know, making sure you really get all the information, making sure you're really listening. They, there's so many priorities for internal folks. You know, you're, this, this one investigation isn't their own, the only thing on their plate. So sometimes it's really hard to clear your desk and, and take care of it, you know, the way you would hope to. So that's, that's another thing. And holding on to notes and, and writing reports and all that kind of stuff sometimes falls by the wayside and I get it. But those are some of the areas where, you know, it could be helpful to have some kind of more uh, disciplined process in place. With your notes, yeah, I had a follow-up to that actually. So with your notes, you know, you put together a report and it's probably just going to be, I interviewed this person and that sort of thing. What do you do with your notes and after? Do you keep them for a certain period of time in case there is litigation or do you attach them to your report or what happens to your notes? I typically put everything I want, everything, all the facts I've analyzed. What I try to do is I try to summarize everything because when I take notes, I take verbatim. I'm writing down everything the person says because if I'm, I, I can't do both. I either have to type everything they're saying uh, and it's so that I can go back and look at it, but I can't edit it as I'm typing. So just because it, that's just the way I work. So I put everything they say in there down to the, you know, flipping comments and, and things. So it's a lot, but I, I don't tip it. You know, I go back and forth and my process always changes and, and develops over time. But as of now, I don't include the actual uh, statements as part of the report as an, if the client wants them, I'm happy to give them to them, 
you know, with the caveat that, you know, it's a lot, <laughs> it's a lot, but I do try to distill it and put it, the important parts in the report or the relevant parts, I should say, in the report. And then I analyze the facts and support my determination. So I'll explain how, what, what facts I relied on and credibility determinations and all that, and then what my determination is. But as I said, you know, I'm not opposed to handing over statements. I just, to, to the client, I just, sometimes I think it's just too much information to process. So I have a selfish question because you partially, because I play poker and you mentioned earlier, you know, you're pretty good at telling when people are telling a lie. What, what are some common signs when someone's not telling you the truth? Do you have like tells that just pop out to you? I don't know that I really have tells. I have behaviors that I see over and over and over again. (laughs) So so you can't rely on them, obviously, 100%. And a lot of studies regarding lying show that most people, you know, I would never say I can tell someone lying. I really have to go back and look at all the evidence and the witness statements. And, you know, sometimes it might not be a matter of lying. It might be a matter of just remembering it differently or, you know, so I don't typically say someone's lying because I don't feel comfortable making, you know, quite that level of, you know, but I will say certain behaviors I do see over and over again are things where And I always find it a little surprising, but cases where there's, you know, typically in harassment, I would say cases where you interview the subject and the subject just denies everything, everything, like just nothing ever happened ever. You know, they didn't look at the person, they didn't know the person, you know, to the point where you're sort of scratching your head thinking, usually the truth lies somewhere in the middle, right? You know, maybe it's not, there's always three sides to every story. And so I do find it more credible when people say, yeah, we had that conversation, but I said X, not Y, or I meant it this way, not that way. You know, just some sort of acknowledgement that, that there was something that happened, but maybe the interpretation of it was different. I always, as a general rule, find that much more credible than the, nope, don't know what you're talking about, never happened, never saw it. So that's just sort of an anecdotal, you know, obviously I can't rely on that always, but it is a common threat, I will say, surprisingly. Yeah, it's like a yellow flag at least. Well, thanks very much for your time today. Do you have anything you'd like to plug? Oh, goodness. Do I have, I just did a webinar for uh, the Association of Workforce Investigators. And so that's over. So you can sign up for that. But I think if you, if you do check out their website, you can, they have a lot of valuable information, particularly useful for people doing internal investigations. I think it's a, it's a great organization and it's really helped me get up and running. Other than that, I guess you can just find me on my website at ablinlaw.com or LinkedIn. We have one final question for you. So we can oh, our shout out of the week. We want to just highlight something positive in the world. So it can be a person, it can be a book, it can be an organization, it can be a TV show, it could be a pet. Just something you want to shout out. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't shout out my, I'm on the board of a domestic violence agency here in Chicago that's doing wonderful work in, in hopefully the prevention of domestic violence and assisting women who are, you know, the victims of domestic violence, sort of trying to 
sort out their lives and get to the next more positive step. And so uh, that organization is called Chavlin. It's a local Chicago land, very, very local Chicago organization. Small, it's a small one, but I think they're doing great work. So I'll concur, Rachel. Their Shelva does wonderful work at their luncheons. I, I went to one a few years back, probably six, seven years ago. I got an invite when Lisa Madigan was still attorney general and she spoke about the importance. So no, it's a wonderful organization. I encourage people to check it out. Thanks, Max. We'll love to get you back to another luncheon. <laughs> that would be nice. It's nice to be invited places. <laughs> Rachel, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your expertise with us and giving our listeners I think a unique perspective on something we haven't really been able to talk about yet. So thank you so much for doing that. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Hey, this is Ahmed and Max. Thanks for listening to Employee to Lawyer. I hope you're all enjoying the show and the content and all of our guest stories. And we'd love your help in spreading news about Neil Illinois and the show. Please encourage your friends and family to subscribe and share. And if you happen to listen to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a nice review but only if it's going to be a five-star rating. Yeah, otherwise we're all set. 